0: Welcome to Woke Isn't Enough, a podcast created by two women of color who think that it's time to move collectively beyond checking the boxes when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Jess Aiden Lee, and I'm here with my colleague Fiona Elephant, and we are the founders of Healing Equity United. Hey Fiona. Hey Jess, how you doing? I'm okay. Yeah, so you know, it, it's been um, it's been a couple of tough weeks, right? We got uh, the murder of Dante Wright, and then of course what happened in, in Virginia um, with one of our service members being pulled over, and all of this is happening as. Asian American hate is on the rise. And of course, there's so much racialized trauma. We haven't even talked about the kids that are being moved around in, in cages at the border. And there's so much racial trauma happening right now, you know, whether we are aware of it or not. And, and you know, maybe maybe where we can start is like talking about what is racialized trauma?
1: Yeah, so there are several definitions that people are using regarding racialized trauma, but here's one that we both like and use. So racial trauma or race-based traumatic stress refers to the mental and emotional injury caused by encounters with racial bias and ethnic discrimination, racism, and hate crimes. So any individual that has experienced emotionally painful, sudden, and uncontrollable racist encounters is at risk of suffering from race-based traumatic stress injury. And I just I would qualify that to say that it doesn't have to be um, sudden, right? Like it it can be repeated, right? Like the microaggressions. Many of us. Um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color face on a repeated basis. Those are, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts. And it also results in racialized trauma. Um, You know, we also have these videos of Black and brown bodies being brutalized by law enforcement that are literally played on repeat in the news. And we have these videos that are uploaded to YouTube and... We have, you know, little thirteen-year-old boys shot. Um, you know, I, I. It is a lot to hold emotionally and psychologically. So, is that enough of a definition, or would you like to expand on it?
0: I mean, I think that it's also it's it is that that direct what you were talking about that direct. Um, experience that we have ourselves and then the indirect right um of what you see or even what you hear you know i know some of us have been taking a break from from watching these videos but we can't always stop like the text messages that are coming up or when our friends family call us and tell us there's been another asian elder pushed on the street and died from injuries or I, I just think that there's there's a lot of ways that we are experiencing that trauma indirectly and I think it's not just a black community it's not just the Asian American community I know the Latinx community and the Native community are also all experiencing this racialized trauma and it's been so heightened in in the past year or two, I mean, and I want to say that we all of our communities have experienced racialized trauma for generations, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: It seems like there's there's like an intense amount of it right now. It just feels like everything is just more heightened. And well, and yeah, I think you're right. It's like,
1: is it so? Look, I firmly believe that the detrimental and disproportionate impact of white supremacy has always existed since white supremacy came became a thing, right? But the fact that we can turn on our social media and be bombarded with it, we can see it in the news, we open the newspapers, our friends call us, our family members call us, I think that um, gives credence to your statement that it seems like it and feels like it's intensified.
0: Yes, definitely for sure. And you know how do how does it show up? Because now that we know what it means, like how do we know that it's showing up for BIPOC folks? Like, what are people saying? Or how are people reacting? what do you well, thinking?
1: it can show up in a variety of ways, right? So at one end of the spectrum, you can have those who completely shut down, right? It doesn't exist. it doesn't have anything to do with me, and they internalize a lot of systemic oppression so as long as I behave correctly, don't fight back, wear the right clothes, have the right job, do the right thing, live in the right neighborhood, you know, as long as I Um, assimilate into the societal norms that have been established by white supremacy, right? That all of that trauma will not impact me or affect me directly because I'm behaving correctly, right? And at the other end of the spectrum, you have all the folks who are super angry, lashing out, saying, you know... um, I'm the only one that this is affecting and that my pain is is, outmeasures your pain. So, for example, if I were at that end of the spectrum, I would say, Jessica, as a Black woman, the trauma and racialized trauma that I feel far outweighs the racialized trauma that you could feel on any given day being an Asian person, right? And I think that when folks are so caught up in and in the midst of being triggered by racialized trauma, their ability to see how the same types of trauma with the same type of impact play out in other BIPOC communities. Do you know what I'm saying?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. And
1: Do you have any other examples about, like, what this might look like and how we can identify when we are in the midst of experiencing racialized trauma?
0: You know, I think that we've seen a lot of it in the work that we've been doing recently, right, in terms of, like, um, people saying, I have no privileges at all. I have no social identities tied to privilege, right? Right even though i speak english fluently i'm in this country legally i'm able bodied i have a full time job have legal immigration i have all those things but i am not i don't have any privileges right and so really what that when i when i hear that what that says to me is that your identity is associated with oppression are coming out in such a big way and you're so traumatized by what's happening that it's hard to show up as an ally. It's hard to remember that you have some power. You know, if you are if you're able to speak English fluently, that's a privilege that you hold over those who don't speak English. You know, if you have a full-time job during the pandemic, that is privilege that we hold, and, and and I do see that you know for those who have experienced a lot of racialized trauma, that they're unable to see those privileges at all.:
1: Yeah, I think that you're right when you know, it's almost as if if I were to concede the racialized trauma that you are experiencing in association with your racial identity, and that differs from mine, that somehow my racialized trauma or experience becomes less important or devalued right? And I think that plays into the whole notion of the Oppression Olympics, right? So before we move any further, can you talk to folks about what the Oppression Olympics are, and how it plays out, and what happens when we buy into it when we're triggered by racialized trauma?
0: Okay, so I don't like the Oppression Olympics, because I just feel like why? what we're, it's basically, it basically pits communities against each other by saying that, I have it worse than you because of X, Y, and Z. Or something that I heard um, a couple years ago when I was working in a nonprofit is that Black and indigenous communities have it the worst in this country. And, And it's like, well, that doesn't take into account intersectionality. It also doesn't take into account the intentional erasure of history of Asian Americans and some Latinx communities, right? And so why are we even saying those things when really that's what white supremacy wants us to do. They want us to to play into the oppression Olympics. Because when we're fighting each other, then we're too busy fighting each other other to fight the systems. And you know, it also shows up like, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about about some of the trainings that we've held um Uh, and and I know this has happened like 100% of the time in different trainings that we've held talking about anti-Asian hate. And so I, I just thought that maybe this is an interesting point to bring up.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we have a lot of trainings, well, we have had recent trainings that talk about Asian and Black communities coming together in solidarity, right? And so Asian folks coming out to say Black Lives Matter and for Black folks to come out to say stop Asian hate, right? So we've been holding these trainings. And without fail, right? Or am I wrong? Without fail, there is always at least one participant who identifies as Black or African-American who DMs me, reaches out to me and says... um, well questions why they should show up in solidarity with asian folks when they have been the target of anti-blackness by varied asian folks in the community right and so and and you on the other hand have also heard in the efforts of pursuing um stop asian hate or stop api hate right that some folks are leaning towards anti-black measures in order to keep asian community safe and so for us it is about having both communities recognize how they are playing into the oppression Olympics and buying into the overall um maintenance of the white supremacist structure because we're pitting ourselves against each other, right? Instead of collectively coming together in solidarity and leveraging and um, amplifying our strength in numbers, we're pointing fingers at each other, daggers at each other, quite frankly. You
0: know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I think that for those of us who who want there to be an anti-racist and anti-oppressive culture or country. I think a big piece of this is recognizing for us um, who are part of the global majority, those of us who don't identify as white, for us to realize like, to what extent have we internalized some of this racialized trauma and how are we healing from it? Because I can say that the healing piece is just as important as fighting for racial justice?
1: Well, I think it's not just important, Jess. It's crucial.
0: You can't
1: fight for racial justice for all, anti-oppression for all, if you are still in the midst of your own trauma and having trauma reactions. Mm -hmm. Because hurt people hurt people, right? All
0: the time. All the time.
1: All the time. So, you know, your anti-oppression... Uh, measures are necessarily going to be detrimentally impacted by your trauma and how your trauma Mm -hmm. is playing out. So if you don't take the time to heal and to address it, to mitigate it, to refill and replenish your cup in order to um, continue to do the work in an equitable way, I I just don't think it's possible.
0: Right. And so... I think what we're saying is that it's really important for us to to have have like a plan and to take actions that are crucial for our own racial healing, right? And I think the flip, the other side of that is also to see the oppressor inside of us. And all of us, whether we're white or not, have to know what is that what is the oppressor like inside of us and how do we work to address that and, and i know we're going to get
1: can you give on. some examples though what's yeah, the oppressor was, inside of you
0: so i was actually going to have you give some examples of this but i was just going to say that you know we've all internalized white supremacy to a certain extent right we've all internalized our experiences to a certain extent and so so why do you why do you start and then i'll give an example
1: So one example that I can share is that it is, unfortunately, a changing phenomenon, but a still a reoccurring, reoccurring phenomenon in the Caribbean American and Caribbean community that... Um, so I'll just give it example. So when I was growing up, everybody in my Jamaican family warned me about being like quote-unquote, those Black people. And by those Black people, they were talking about African Americans who they had learned in terms, by way of colonialization by the British, by way of the exported uh, racist narrative from America, that Black Americans were lazy, didn't want to work as hard, didn't prioritize education, So on, so forth. And so having internalized that narrative, that piece of the oppressor, that's what they were sharing with me. And to recognize that, you know, as I was growing up, to recognize there's absolutely no difference between me and quote, unquote, those Black people right? Because I look in the mirror, I'm a Black person. (laughs) And when the rest of society looks at me, they see the same thing, right? And so we all have to recognize those really hurtful narratives that we have been socialized to accept, Right. right? And we need to have accountability partners who call us in lovingly or call us out by shaking our shoulders vigorously, To to help us recognize when our behaviors or our language reflect oppressive norms of society. Um so before I go on and on and on, what's your example of the oppressor inside you?
0: You Yeah, I'm gonna give an example in the nonprofit sector that I think resonates with a lot of people who have done hiring or even applied to jobs, right? So Oftentimes when we're hiring for a for position, we ask for a resume. Sometimes we ask for a cover letter, right? But increasingly people are not even asking for a cover letter. And there's been like this movement um, of people just not even wanting the cover letter because apparently people don't want to read and just asking for resumes, right? And de- determining based on a resume whether someone is qualified or not for a position. So for me, it's really thinking about what are we saying and who are we leaving out when we are just looking at someone's resume or even their LinkedIn profile, right? So like, who are we leaving out of the conversation? Who are we oppressing? And, and, and for me, you know, that's the way that I was taught. Like when you're doing HR, you look at the resumes because you want to see if they have the experience, if they have the education, blah, blah, blah. You will never find someone's, never, but it's rare that you'll find someone's lived experience on a resume right so if they've been houseless for 10 years and that's lived experience they can bring with them how would they put that on a resume would they write houseless from january 2010 to january 20 like that's not a thing right and so the way that i've you know flipped it around and something just for our listeners to think about is i actually look at the cover letter first or I look at the Absolutely,
1: impact. absolutely, Jeff. Go ahead.
0: And then if I like what they have to say, which is oftentimes like what makes you interested in this position, if you tell me about your lived experiences, then I will take I will then I will decide whether to look at your resume. Right. So the things that we've been socialized to believe in, I think it, it is really a part of like we have to start dismantling some of those things because we were taught to keep certain systems in place, as you like to say, Fiona.
1: Absolutely. And the system works exactly the way it's supposed to, which I also like to say.
0: Yeah. And so how do we be allies or co-conspirators in this moment?
1: Well, so to be an intersectional ally or co-conspirator, right? So I can be an ally or co-conspirator to my Asian sibs, to trans sibs, to, you know, like, so you have to really look at all of your multiple identities and then determine where you hold power and privilege and figure out how you can leverage it. So I think we were just having a conversation or a training the other day and I used the example Actually, it was with the person who said that they had no privilege whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I use the example that, you know, in the, in in the wake of such significant anti-Asian hate and assaults, as a Black person, being Black is a privilege in that regard, right? Mm-hmm. Because I can leverage my non asian identity to call others call on others to stop their behaviors or to interrupt their behaviors or to you know ask them to reevaluate why they are associating a group of people with a freaking virus right um so you know, I think that it really behooves all of us to recognize all of our varied identities, whether or not we identify as BIPOC and whether or not we have other marginalized identities and figure out how we can use them in order to work in solidarity with others. That's a very long-winded answer. Do you have a shorter answer?
0: You know, I don't think it's about whether it's long or short, right? People always want a checklist. And I think that I think that the best way that I can be an ally or co-conspirator is checking in with myself every single day to see what that oppressor is saying, to see if that oppressor is becoming smaller and smaller, because that's that's part of healing, right? So if I'm feeling some kind of way about um, a video that I watched where an Asian American was attacked, right, and I, think, I start thinking about the, the race of that perpetrator, I stop myself to be like, hey, why am I even thinking about that? right? Like, like, what am I trying to do there? So I think for me, it's about incorporating regular healing practices every single day. And for me lately, it's just been playing with puppies, playing with puppies, helping them overcome their fear of the world, things like that. And so, so really, you know, what is it for you all? What, what, what are some of your healing practices? Because I can tell you playing with puppies was not on my self-care list. My
1: self-care list right now is watching back-to-back episodes of Survivor starting from season one (laughs) to season 40. Mindless get-away-from-it-all act of Mm -hmm. self-care.
0: Yeah. And so let us know. Let us know what you're thinking, how you're thinking about racial trauma, how you're thinking about racial healing, and what can you do. As allies and co-conspirators in this work we'd love to hear from you